0: Visit the Bedfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to bedfredsports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. A 1, 2, three,
2: four.
3: Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit diddytv.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app, from your app store today. Thanks for tuning in to Insights, folks, where today we're excited to welcome California native and now Nashville-based singer-songwriter, the always delightful Nikki Bloom. My perspective on life and love has made a shift for the better, shares Bloom, the acclaimed artist behind Avondale Drive, her newest studio album, out now on Compass Records. Bloom pointed out in a recent Q&A with us that one silver lining of the pandemic was that all musicians were grounded at home and had time on their hands and were jonesing to be creative. With no touring happening, there were so many artists who decided to set up little home recording rooms. Because we were all physically isolated, she points out, sharing tracks and flying them to musician friends was a way to commune and collaborate, giving each musician the freedom to interpret, express, and add to the songs in their own unique way. That's how Bloom's new record came together, and you'll learn all about it this hour. So without further delay, let's welcome to Insights, Nikki Bloom.
4: So how long have you been in Nashville then?
1: Um, I've been here for five years now. But you're originally from California, right? I am, yep. I'm from Northern California. um, And I lived there until I was 17. And then I lived in San Diego for about a decade. And then I moved back to San Francisco and then here. So... Nashville was like my first out-of-state move when I was in my 30s. And I don't think I'll leave, <laughs> to be honest. Do you miss anything about California, um, the weather? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. I'm actually going um, on Friday to, to do some work out there. And I'm really looking forward to it. So I do. I miss the mountains. I miss yeah. the ocean. I miss um, my family, you know, are all out there, but it's you know, I can always go visit. It's not going anywhere, so I
3: feel well, great about
4: Well, and you're in the music biz, so Nashville's a great place to be.
1: It is. It's a great place to be, and it's inspiring. And you know, there's so much going on, and there's such a great community of people. It's actually one of the cities that just still feels small and intimate.
4: So you grew up in California. Uh, Were you playing music as a kid? Were you singing?
1: Were you doing anything with music growing up? I was doing a lot of singing in the shower when I was a little kid. Like my bathroom when I was a kid had the most incredible acoustics. It was the like old 50s tile. And I figured out like if I put my face in the corner that I could get this like incredible natural reverb. And um, that was kind of, like, my first, like, connection with my voice. And it was, you know, trying to copy Whitney Houston's national anthem or whatever, you know, in in the shower. You know, I grew up in the 80s, and um, the radio was a big influence on me. And driving around, my mom, running errands, I was always flipping through the radio. So early on, the earliest kind of, like, influence was definitely that you know, late 80s, early 90s radio pop. Were you aware of
4: any of the great music that had kind of come from that area of California? Or were you sort of typical teenager listening to whatever was on the radio right now? I mean, that was me, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was aware because I have two older brothers um, and they're o- older than me, 10 years and six years older than me. And my oldest brother, David, was very into the Grateful Dead. So he kind of turned me on to that at an early age. And a lot of it, I just absorbed through like osmosis. I didn't really know what I was hearing or what it was. And then as I got older and I started to learn more, the history of San Francisco and, you know, Jefferson airplane and going to see the Grateful Dead house and, you know, just that scene and in the sixties and starting to like go down to hate and like feel it as a teenager and like hang out in Berkeley. Yeah. I definitely became more and more aware of like the, the significance of the Northern California music scene for sure. And my curiosity kind of continued to grow. So when you were little though, what did you think you would be when you grew up? (laughs) I love that when I was little, I thought I would definitely be a veterinarian or a horse trainer. And I was kind of on track to be a horse trainer Um, I was really into horses growing up. I rode hunter jumpers and worked for my trainer and my dad was like, you can always come back to that, but you need to go to college. So I kind of put that on hold, went to college, ended up having a pretty significant skateboarding injury when I graduated. (laughs) So I couldn't do the horses. So I went back to school, got a teaching degree and I was teaching for a while. So I kind of had as an early adult, these two avenues that I was planning to go down either teaching or horses. Um, and life steered me into music very kind of accidentally. I and mean, it's always been inside me intrinsically, but you know, I never really thought of it as, as a path, a career path. Are there any horses near you in Nashville? There's, so I moved to Madison um, and I'm on a lot more, land now. And I don't have horses, but my neighbors do. So I actually have horses right across my fence from me now, which is kind of a dream. Like every now and then I'll see one walking by and I'm just pinching myself, you know, Tennessee, you don't really get to do that in, in California. There's horses there, but I I wouldn't be able to live near
4: them. So, you weren't really following then what I would say is a traditional music career path. You you were doing lots of other things. When did you actually pick up a guitar then? Were you older or?
1: I was, yeah. My first guitar I got right before I left for college. I was 17. My brother David and my dad took me to the music store and, you know, they helped me pick out a guitar and I brought it to college with me. I took, you know, like a two credit. Acoustic guitar course in college. And that for me was when I started to really realize like, I knew I'd always liked to sing, but then to accompany myself on guitar, there was definitely like a moment of magic when I realized like, there are songs that are only two chords and I can learn them in an hour and accompany myself and sing like i remember sitting in my dorm room and having that realization for the first time and being pretty blown away and that kind of was like the hook and then i started learning more songs you know other people's songs and you know if i had enough to drink i would start playing you know at parties um but yeah i would say like my freshman year of college was the kind of first taste of like whoa this is cool and i can i can do this I think I drove roommates crazy, but. (laughs) Where were you in college? I was in San Diego down at USD.
4: USD. Okay. And so did you play in any bars around the campus or.
1: You know, it wasn't really until um, I played at a party, you know, and I was encouraged by somebody I really respected to kind of dive in more. And he really encouraged me to start playing open mic nights. So this was just after college. I started playing open mic nights, um, in Pacific beach and yeah, got my first, my first taste of live performance. I remember the first, uh, open mic I did, it was like, you know, you're drawing hat numbers out of a hat. And I think I got like the latest one you could get. And so I just had to sit there with my nerves, like waiting and watching everybody go. And I remember I sat down and I knew nothing about guitars. I didn't have a pickup in my guitar. And I was sitting there as the sound guys were like trying to figure it all out and plug the guitar in. And in the midst of it all, I forgot every lyric to every song I'd ever (laughs) known. And I was like frozen. Luckily they were like still figuring out how to mic the guitar. And by the time they figured it all out, all of it out. It kind of came flooding back. And I did my first open mic night, but I definitely had that like moment of, oh shit, I don't remember anything.
4: Well, I have a funny story about an open mic night. I played one too that had all the slots full, but one. So when I got there, I didn't realize you had to get there early and sign up. And I was like, well, that's weird. Number three spot is completely open. Can I have that? And they said, for sure you can take number three spot. What I didn't realize is number two was an incredible professional musician that was just playing the open mic night and had to follow that guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that's why nobody was in number three spot. So yeah, there anyway, uh-huh. there has to be a reason. There has to be a reason. There has to be a reason. So who was the person that turned you on to um, believing that you could be uh, a musician then? Who was that person?
1: um it's actually my now ex-husband um he had a band the mother hips that i was really into and you know i was at one of those shows and the after party was one of those after parties and tim heard me sing and play one of my kind of like drunken you know nights of feeling good and and brave enough to play in front of people. And he was kind of like, wow, I didn't know you sing. You should you should do this. You should come to San Francisco and you should record. And I kind of was like, yeah, he probably won't follow through, but that's cool. You know, it made me feel good. And the next day he called and he's like, no, really, you should make a trip and you should come up and we should record some songs. And that kind of set me on this path of like, oh, okay, this is real. Somebody who I admire is believing in me And that kind of like mentor-mentee relationship started then. Did that lead you to start your own band? It did. So we recorded my first record, Toby's Song, in a basement in San Francisco. Um, And when that record was ready um, to press, we put together an album release show. And of course, I wanted a band. I wanted the band to sound like the record. And that's when I put the band together, The Gramblers. So it was uh it was it was the beginning of of a lot, a lot of years of playing together so was uh, tim in your band then yep he was yep he was in my band he played guitar he played keys um, he sang he was my main writing partner um, and we did about a decade of of all that together until it kind of you know everything good must come to <laughs> Well,
4: that had to be a bit traumatic when you got divorced, only because uh, he was your mentor when you first started. And I'm sure there there felt like I was left, you know, there's only half at that point. So how did, how did you kind of get through
1: that period? Yeah, well, I started coming to Nashville. My managers at the time were like, okay, you need to go to Nashville and you need to find other writing partners. And I had never experienced writing the way that it's done in Nashville, like planned, organized, you know, time limits. And they set me up with a bunch of rights. And I just remember being totally blown away by the process. I loved how organized it was. I loved how professional it was. Um, And I also happened to come in the spring and, you know, Tennessee, I mean, it's gorgeous here in the spring. It's like, it, it feels like a fairy tale land. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at cardinals at the bird feeder right now. <laughs> you know, everything's in bloom. So, I kept coming back to write um, in Nashville, and then I really got this bug of like, I could just stay here. I could just stay here and do this, and kind of remove myself from my my past. And you know, there's a lot of history when you have lived in a place for a long time with a partner and, you know, I kind of just think I wanted a, a fresh start.
4: Do you think that in some way there's a silver lining in all this that maybe you wouldn't have taken the reins and the bull by the horns or whatever you want to call it to, to write the way that you're writing now if, you, um, if everything had stayed the same in your life?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm sort of a perpetual optimist and I really do believe that the universe has a plan. Um, and I really do, you know, have a lot of gratitude for the obstacles because they just give so many lessons and, you know, self-realization and, you know, they kind of force you to, to dig deep and to really explore your inner landscape, kind of understand your role more in situations. Um, And certainly, I mean, I think that now, you know, there was a lot of me with Tim and that dynamic where I really wanted to, like, make him proud. And I wanted to do the thing to, you know, he was expecting things from me. And it's a really different thing to do something because somebody has expectations of you than to just do things because you intrinsically want and need to do them. So I've definitely over the years and healing and therapy have have found more of my own voice and have felt less of a need, you know, to um, fill the expectation of others, which which feels really good and freeing. So yes, definite silver lining. I wouldn't, I really wouldn't change a thing. So
4: since you've been in Nashville and you said everything is very professional and uh, what have you learned about the songwriting process since you've been in Nashville?
1: I think I've learned, you know, when you go in the rooms and you do the thing, um, you know, you typically, in my experience, walk out with a completed song, which is great, you know, and that's an, an, an important muscle to exercise, um, you know, completing something. And I've always sort of put pressure on myself if I start a song that I have to finish it right then. And I think that being in Nashville, I've kind of learned that it's also okay to walk away from a song and to let it sit and to let it steep. Um, so I, I think I've just expanded my approach to songwriting that it doesn't have to be one way. It can be rigid and you know you complete what you start in the same day, but it can also you know be open and and you can let it breathe. and you can also you know show other people, get other people's experience and You know, I I think that that what I've learned is there's just a lot of ways to approach writing.
4: Do you think being around all of the amazing musicians that are also in Nashville um, elevates your own songwriting and performing?
1: You know, it's it's funny. People ask me that a lot about how it feels to be a musician in Nashville. And and what I've kind of landed on is it feels as inspiring as it does feel intimidating you know (laughs) kind of have to keep blinders on and absolutely like you hear somebody you know put out a song that's just so such a great turn of phrase or such a great you know hook or whatever it is and you're just like that's good and then you're like okay it's motivating you know Some it can also be like well shoot is my song, you know, is it good enough? Should I go back and change that line? Should I try to make it better? And then you get to the point where, you know, there's so many phases in like making a record, right? It's like the writing process and then you go to record it and then you go to mix it and then you go to master it. And once the mastering is done, that's like a whole other acceptance because it's done and it's out there and it's where I'm at now. It's like, are is this good? Are you? And you're just like, it doesn't matter because it's out you know so you kind of have to go through all of it's very emotional it's such an emotional roller coaster at every at every turn of making a record you know making it recording releasing um but i think everybody kind of has that I think everybody rides that roller coaster is what I'm learning, you know, and knowing musicians. We all have the same experience, whether you're playing, you know, to 20 people or to 20,000 people. It's like the, the issues are the same for everybody. And that's actually very comforting.
4: So uh, in 2018, you released an album to Rise, You Gotta Fall. What mm-hmm. was the significance of that album to you? Cause that was one
1: of your first as a solo artist, right? It was actually my first two records back in um, 2008 and 11 were solo records. But yes, um, this was the first solo record that I had done in a while. And, you know, it was coming out of that aforementioned turmoil. It was like, you know, changing my life, um, changing my relationships. Um, There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of grieving. There was anger. Um, you know, I hadn't really quite gotten to like this acceptance place yet, which shows up more on on this record that I'm about to release, Avondale Drive. Um, so, you know, it, it served a purpose. I needed to write it um, because it was really cathartic for me. We're going to get to the new album here in
4: just a second. But um, you just reminded me of one of the lyrics when I was listening to the to the album. And, and I don't know the exact lyric, but The point was that I got up this morning and I felt like I needed to call you. Yeah. And I think that everyone's gone through that when you've broken up with someone or your relationship has ended, that despite all the negative parts of it, there were parts that still were positive and you're kind of still connected to somebody and you want to still share your life on some level. And you almost have to tell yourself, I can't go there, you know? I got to call somebody else for that lifeline. It can't be that person anymore.
1: Yep. Yep. That's right. And really where I got to with that song, Juniper Woodsmoke, is, you know, even if I did call you, I'd probably be really disappointed because you're not the person that I thought you were. You don't have the capacity, the compassion piece, the, you know, it's kind of like drawing blood from a stone. It's like, You're looking to this person for something that you realize they don't have to offer you anymore. And, you know, that's a big acceptance piece.
4: So with Avondale Drive, um, were you writing it during this last couple of years of COVID and kind of what were you doing during that period?
1: Yeah, I started writing it probably slightly before the pandemic. I had moved to Nashville. I was settling in my house. Um, I was sort of starting to date again, which was very strange. I did not know how to do it. I was very intimidated by it. I was kind of choosing the same kinds of people which were putting me, you know, in similarly um toxic situations and I you know was really struggling to understand my role in my patterns and to break away from my patterns. Um, so that was kind of the first phase of writing for this record. And then it continued into the pandemic. So you know there's definitely um songs in there that that, that kind of untease the idleness that we all felt and the ruminating mind that I you know, faced every day that we all kind of face, the unknown. Um, so, yeah, and then we recorded during the pandemic as well. So slowing
4: down for a couple of years like we all did, was that a cathartic sort of period for you that maybe enabled you to um, work through some of these things that you're describing?
1: Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I, it it was tr- tragic, tragic for you know, humanity, but it was really good for me and for my head and my mind and my body to just stay in one place for a, an extended period of time. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person that says yes to everything. I've been taught, like, you, you're you given an opportunity, you say yes. And the universe forced. And I think for me, it was really um, in, important to just be grounded. I also had a surgery um, the night of the tornado in Nashville, which was March 2nd. um, I also had a surgery that was gonna put me out for like at least six weeks. And then when the whole world shut down, I was kind of like, oh, everybody's shutting down. (laughs) I didn't know it was gonna be for a year, two years. But there was something comforting about that, too, because even being out of the game for six weeks with my surgery, I was like, Ooh, I'm going to get left behind, FOMO, you know. Um, so it, it came at, at a good time for me.
4: It's been an interesting, I think, process for everybody to uh, go from, hey, this is going to end really quickly and we're just going to all be back in it to, oh, acceptance that it's going to be a while and then actually enjoying some of the Uh, I don't have to do this. I have to be at home. I have to get inside my head. And so it's been kind of, like you said, it's tragic for humanity, but I think there have been some silver linings for, for people in terms of getting in touch with what's
1: important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, you know, I think that there's musicians who came out of the pandemic, like, chomping at the bit, ready to go, ready to hit the road, ready to tour. And I'm not going to say I'm the opposite, but I've really enjoyed being at home, tending to a garden, getting a dog, sleeping in my own bed. So, you know, now as things open up and and we're starting to, you know, get back to this new, new normal, um, I'm really looking for more balance Really looking for more balance, more work life balance, you know, I feel like I spent a decade in a van and I'm just not ready to to do it in the same way, you know, so I think it's good. It's been good for me to kind of like reevaluate you know how I want to spend my time and um, my approach to touring and you know finding more balance. well, I know that a lot of artists
4: are going on shorter tours and maybe taking a break and then then going back again. I mean, I think that everyone can approach it how they want to, but certainly, like you said, um, having that time and you've got a dog now, I mean, the dog's going to want to have you home sometimes.
1: (laughs) And I bring her with me sometimes, you know, she's actually a great tour dog and she loves being on stage. And it's funny because whenever I bring her, you know, to the venues, the crew and staff, they're all stoked to see a dog. So dogs add just a little bit of life and light to everybody's day. What kind of dog, I have to ask? She's an Australian cattle dog, a red heeler. Her name's Birdie. She's very sweet. Okay, Love you it. might
4: have to send me a picture of Birdie because Birdie might need a mug I in will. this interview. That I would be will. great. Yeah. So where is Avondale Drive? That's the name of the album. Was that an actual place or is that fictional?
1: Yep. no, Avondale Drive is um, the house we recorded in. It's my old house. Um, It's the house that I moved to first when I landed in Nashville. And it was a, it was very much a healing place for me. It was like, I think of it as like my little nest where I came and like licked my wounds for a while and kind of got back up on my feet and got my strength back. And you know, it's, it's in such a great little neighborhood and very walkable to coffee shops and bars. And it was just the most lovely place to land in Nashville. And, um, we lived there through the pandemic and made the record there and just wanted to pay some homage to it because it was, it was a very special place and served a very important purpose in my life. So was it,
4: uh, more relaxing to be able to record at home rather than in a um, studio someplace else where maybe there's a little more stressors going on. Yeah,
1: it was. And you know, at the time when everybody was home, um, most musicians ended up putting together some kind of home recording uh, system or situation. So everybody was equipped to record from home and everybody was bored. So it was kind of the perfect time to collaborate remotely. Um, you know, people like Carl Denson or Jay Belarose or Oliver Wood, who would normally be touring and be busy, were free to play on my record. And we got the most, you know, incredible friends and musicians to lend um to this record and i just feel so so lucky that we were able to collaborate you know and it felt really good at the time because we were all so isolated that at least we could collaborate through music still even though we weren't in the same room so who produced the album for you uh, jesse noah wilson he um and i were living together at the time we still live together uh he's an incredible producer and engineer he's also a very um accomplished musician himself um and it really started as like let's just start let's just do it let's just start recording and see what we get and we kept being like this is pretty cool let's keep going you know we didn't sit down with like okay we're making a record we were just like let's uh let's let's work on that song today ooh let's send that to you know Eric Slick let's let's send that out to uh you know Richard Millsap whatever. We just kept, you know, recording songs and sending them to people who we wanted to play on them. And we really just kind of kept going. So it it was nice. It's nice to record at your own pace for sure. So was he helping co-write
4: or were there other uh, musicians that you were actually co-writing with as well?
1: Yeah. Jesse and I did a lot of co-writing together. Kai Welch, who's an incredible musician, producer, engineer, um, in Nashville as well. He co-wrote a bunch on this record. Um, I have co-writes, um, with Ranger Doug from Riders in the Sky, who I love. Um, who else do I have rights with on this? Hmm, AJ Croce, um, who's another really dear friend of mine, but it's, it's definitely a very collaborative record.
4: Um, So how did this album differ from your previous albums?
1: I mean, aside from what we've already stated, recording during a pandemic from home, (laughs) um, I think, you know, the big thing is I've just started to settle into myself more, um, you know, trying to kind of tend to that inner landscape. And, you know, you don't want to totally kill the inner critic, but you want to check the inner critic and just, you know, I think I started writing more mantras that I needed to hear, you know, like a song like sweet surrender came out of just a day where my brain would not stop. It was like a ruminating mind. And I was aware of it and I couldn't stop it. And I was like, I need to write, I need to sit down and write what I need to hear, you know? So it's probably personal in a new way, you know, all my records are personal because I write from experience and I write as a form of therapy and catharsis. But, um, you know, it's just my story continues and, and it's similar in that way in that it's authentically me. Well, it
4: does seem like a lot of these songs are very personal and, um, and and that probably came out of a lot of what you were going through. But let's talk about a couple of them. We've already mentioned... Juniper Woodsmoke. He, we talked about that. What about Learn to Love Myself? What is this song about?
1: Um, it's actually funny. I was on the phone with a friend, um, and her boyfriend had just moved out. And she was like, Gosh, and I just, you know, he's gone. And I keep walking around the house and I keep seeing things that annoy me. And I like turn to yell at him, and I realize he doesn't live there anymore. And I realize the only person left to yell at is me (laughs) and I was like oh my god that's so funny it's so easy to just like place the blame on somebody or project your issues onto somebody else so Jesse I think had written the music for that song and then after my little chat with my friend I was like yeah this is the direction I want to go I want to write about this so I think it's really learning to like own your part in things Um, you know, be kind to yourself and, and really learn to love yourself because in the end, we're all we got, you know, we're all we got. So it's important to like the person that you're stuck with, which is you. (laughs) So that's what it's about. Really.
4: It is the only person that you're ultimately stuck with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can't get away from that. So you got to work on it.
1: You do. It's so important. It's so important.
4: So speaking of co-writes with A.J. Croce, you wrote that with you uh, wrote that song Love Despair with him.
1: Mm-hmm. And
4: and uh, we love A.J. He's he's great. Um, what did what was that song about?
1: Oh, well, that song, you know, I mentioned earlier this like being thrown back into the dating pool. You know, A.J. was widowed around the same time that I you know, became a divorcee. And so we had very different experiences of loss and losing our partner, our long-term partners. Um, and we were just talking about, you know, getting back into dating. And I was just like, gosh, I just, I know it's such, it's so hard, you know, to meet people. And he was kind of like, well, I don't have any problem meeting people. I just don't feel emotionally ready. And I don't want to lead anybody on. And that kind of got us talking about, dating and like what it is. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's dating, you know, trying people on like, you know, dating multiple people at the same time, which was super foreign to both of us because we had been in a monogamous relationship for so, so long. And, you know, it was a playful way of being like, okay, you can, you know, you can kind of share your love without giving it away, you know? So that song was really kind of meant to be a humorous, you know, poke at dating and, you know, it's, it's playful. And it was really just us kind of scratching our heads about how do we do this? Listen, I have a couple of friends
4: that they were in a long-term relationship and it ended and they were dating originally when they met their partner, um, when there was no real social media, you know, where it wasn't just an app. And so what, they were faced with is they came back into the dating world and everything is like swipe left, swipe right, and all these crazy things that they weren't used to. And so it was, yes, it was meeting people. It was also a whole new way of meeting people. And that um,
1: was so different, you know, so. Totally. I mean, I was on dating apps for like maybe 24 hours and it gave me a panic attack. I I was so (laughs) stressed out by it. I remember just like bursting into tears, like I can't face this rejection, you know, it's like instant (laughs) rejection. It's like, I like the prolonged in-person rejection, you know, (laughs) it's a whole other world. It's a whole other world that that the dating apps, I mean, gosh. (sighs) Well, it's completely different.
4: It's it's interesting because conceptually it opens up more opportunities on a certain level, um, but it also opens up more opportunities to be hurt Um, And it's more superficial because people are just sort of, they don't know you. They're basing whatever judgment, quick judgment they make on some kind of quick thing. Whereas if you meet someone, like you said, it might be a prolonged agony, but (laughs) at least uh, you spend the time to figure out whether you really like someone or not. So, uh, you know, I think the apps are, you know, there's a, thats they're tough, I think.
1: I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore. Well,
4: exactly. Right on for that. Um, so let's talk about Will's Rolling. That's the last song on the album. And it is a rockin' kind of take you down the road, roll your windows down kind of song. And um, so what are you leaving the
1: listener with there? Mm, I mean, it's it's last. It was intentionally put last because it's kind of like, What's next? For me, it's kind of like, okay, let's keep this engine going. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, like what we mentioned earlier, you know, being in a career that was kind of heavily encouraged by my then partner, having a really strong mentor, having, you know, a team kind of like bolstering my thing was really great and it, and it worked well for a lot of years. And I think stepping into myself and stepping away from that infrastructure was, was you know, a big leap that I needed to take. And, you know, it, it's really, that song is really about, like, how do you light your own inner fire? You know, how do you keep that energy, that engine going on your own? Um, And, you know, it's a practice for me. It's a practice. And it's also, you know, finding more of a balance and, you know, finding things that make me happy. I mean, right now my calendar is pretty full um, and I'm really genuinely excited about every show I have on the books. It's not as many as I might have had in the past, but that's okay with me. And I think, you know, it's, it's how do you keep your fire lit without burning out?
4: In general, do you think you're in a really good place now?
1: I, I am. I feel really good that I have new music coming out. It, you know, it's really, this was a dark winter. <laughs> it was a dark <laughs> winter. It was a long winter. And just with the spring coming and the record coming out and, you know, travel becoming more of an option and playing live shows, I do. I feel optimistic. I feel hopeful. I'm excited to share this record with the world. And I've really, you know, I've really sort of curbed my expectations because this is just another chapter in my story. You know, I've, I've sort of let go of of having any expectation of one thing doing something. It's kind of like, this is just, I, I'm settling into this career more, you know, it took a long time for me to, to feel comfortable being a musician, just because it's kind of feast or famine, you know? And I think I've ridden out enough storms to to not freak out and to feel okay, um, you know, with the pace of a musician's life. Will you be touring? Yeah, yeah, I'll be touring. I just announced some dates um, for the summer. I'm doing a bunch of shows with little feet and there's gonna be more to come. With that, we're doing Bristol Rhythm and Roots. We're doing um, Hog Farm in California coming up. I'll be in Joshua Tree next weekend. It's going to be a lot of festivals and um, there's going to be a, a good number of shows as well. So, Will you be able to connect with your family while you're out there? Yes, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. They had a COVID exposure. Here we are again. <laughs> but I'm really hoping everybody tests negative and I get to see them.
4: Well, I hope for your sake you do. The new album is Avondale Drive. Um, I had the pleasure of getting a sneak listen, and it's just an amazing album. I wish you the best with the album, Nikki, and please come see us in Memphis. I would love to.
1: Thank you so much, Amy. Enjoy that beautiful aqua water. Oh, I hope you get <laughs> to get in. I will. I will. Thank you so much. Thank
4: appreciate you. It. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, Bye. Nikki. I really appreciate it. Me too.
3: Bye. That's a wrap for this edition of Insights. A million thanks to Nikki Bloom for joining us on the show to talk about her life and her fabulous new record, Avondale Drive. Please check it out and order your copy as soon as you can at NikkiBloom.com. From all of us at DiddyTV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights.